Section 32 of the Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 4, Chapter 30. Letters, 1890. Chiefly to Joseph T. Goodman. The Great Machine Enterprise. Dr. John Brown's son, whom Mark Twain and his wife had known in 1873 as Jock, sent copies of Dr. John Brown and his sister Isabella by E. T. McLaren. It was a gift appreciated in the Clemens home. To Mr. John Brown in Edinburgh, Scotland. Hartford, February 11, 1890. Dear Mr. Brown, both copies came, and we are reading and re-reading the one, and lending the other to old-time adores of Rab and his friends. It is an exquisite book, the perfection of literary workmanship. It says in every line, don't look at me, look at him, and one tries to be good and obey, but the charm of the painter is so strong that one can't keep his entire attention on the developing portrait but must steal side glimpses of the artist and try to divine the trick of her felicitous brush. In this book the doctor lives and moves just as he was. He was the most extensive slaveholder of his time, and the kindest, and yet he died without setting one of his bondmen free. We all send our very, very kindest regards. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens if Mark Twain had been less interested in the typesetting machine, he might possibly have found a profit that winter in the old Sellers play, which he had written with Howells seven years before. The play had eventually been produced at the Lyceum Theatre in New York, with A. P. Burbank in the leading role, and Clemens and Howells as financial backers. But it was a losing investment, nor did it pay any better when Clemens finally sent Burbank with it on the road. Now, however, James A. Hearn, a well-known actor and playwright, became interested in the idea, after a discussion of the matter with Howells, and there seemed a probability that with changes made under Hearn's advisement, the play might be made sensible and successful. But Mark Twain's greater interest was now all in the type machine, and certainly he had no money to put into any other venture. His next letter to Goodman is illuminating. The urgency of his need for funds opposed to that conscientiousness which was one of the most positive forces of Mark Twain's body spiritual. The Mr. Arnault of this letter was an Elmira capitalist. To Joseph T. Goodman in California. Hartford, March 31, 90. Dear Joe, if you were here, I should say, get you to washington and beg senator jones to take the chances and put up about ten or no i wouldn't the money would burn a hole in my pocket and get away from me if the furniture of it were proceeding upon merely your judgment and mine and without other evidence it is too much of a responsibility but 
I am in as close a place today as ever I was. $3,000 due for the last month's machine expenses, and the purse empty. I notified Mr. Arnault a month ago that I should want $5,000 today, and his check arrived last night, but I sent it back to him, because when he bought of me on the 9th of December, I said that I would not draw upon him for three months, and that before that date Senator Jones would have examined the machine and approved, or done the other thing. If Jones should arrive here a week or ten days from now, as he expects to do, and should not approve, and shouldn't buy any royalties, my deal with Arnaud would not be symmetrically square, and then how could I refund? The surest way was to return his check. I have talked with the madam, and here is the result. I will go down to the factory and notify Page that I will scrape together $6,000 to meet the March and April expenses, and will retire on the 30th of April and return the assignment to him if in the meantime I have not found financial relief. It is very rough, for the machine does at last seem perfect and just a bird to go. I think she's going to be good for 8,000 M's an hour in the hands of a good ordinary man after a solid year's practice. I may be in error, but I most solidly believe it. There's an improved Mergenthaler in New York. Page and Davis and I watched it two whole afternoons. With the love of us all, Mark. Arnaud wrote Clemens urging him to accept the check for $5,000 in this moment of need. Clemens was probably as sorely tempted to compromise with his conscience as he had ever been in his life, but his resolution held firm. To M. H. R. No, in Elmira, New York. Mr. M. H. R. No. Dear Sir, No, no. I could not think of taking it, with you unsatisfied and you ought not to be satisfied until you have made personal examination of the machine and had a consensus of testimony of disinterested people besides. My own perfect knowledge of what is required of such a machine and my perfect knowledge of the fact that this is the only machine that can meet that requirement make it difficult for me to realize that a doubt is possible to less well-posted men. And so I would have taken your money without thinking and thus would have done a great wrong to you and a great one to myself. And now that I go back over the ground, I remember that where I said I could get along three months without drawing on you, that delay contemplated a visit from you to the machine in the interval, and your satisfaction with its character and prospects. I had forgotten all that, but I remember it now, and the fact that it was not so nominated in the bond does not alter the case or justify me in making my call so prematurely. I do not know that you regarded all that as a part of the bargain, for you were thoroughly and magnanimously unexacting, but I so regarded it, notwithstanding I have so easily managed to forget all about it. You so gratified me and did me so much honor in bonding yourself to me in a large sum upon no evidence but my word and with no protection but my honor that my pride in that is much stronger than my desire to reap a money advantage from it. 
with the sincerest appreciation i am truly yours s l clemens p s i have written a good many words and yet i seem to have failed to say the main thing in exact enough language which is that the transaction between us is not complete and binding until you shall have convinced yourself that the machine's character and prospects are satisfactory i ought to explain that the grip delayed us some weeks and that we have since been waiting for mr jones when he was ready we were not and now we have been ready more than a month while he has been kept in washington by the silver bill he said the other day that to venture out of the capital for a day at this time could easily chance to hurt him if the bill came up for action meantime although it couldn't hurt the bill which would pass anyway mrs jones said she would send me two or three days notice right after the passage of the bill and that they would follow as soon as i should return word that their coming would not inconvenience us i suppose i ought to go to new york without waiting for mr jones but it would not be wise to go there without money the bill is still pending the mergenthaler machine like the page was also at this time in the middle stages of experimental development it was a slower machine but it was simpler less expensive occupied less room there was not so much about it to get out of order it was not so delicate not so human these were immense advantages but no one at this time could say with certainty which typesetter would reap the harvest of millions it was only sure that at least one of them would and the mergenthaler people were willing to trade stock for stock with the page company in order to ensure financial success for both whichever won clemens with a faith that never faltered declined this offer a decision that was to cost him millions winter and spring had gone and summer had come but still there had been no financial conclusion with jones mackey and the other rich californians who were to put up the necessary million for the machine's manufacture goodman was spending a large part of his time traveling back and forth between california and washington trying to keep business going at both ends page spent most of his time working out improvements for the typesetter delicate attachments which complicated its construction more and more to joe t goodman in washington hartford june twenty two ninety dear joe i have been sitting by the machine two hours this afternoon and my admiration of it towers higher than ever there is no sort of mistake about it it is the big bonanza in the two hours the time lost by type breakage was three minutes this machine is totally without a rival rivalry with it is impossible last friday fred whitmore it was the twenty-eighth day of his apprenticeship on the machine stacked up forty-nine thousand seven hundred m's of solid nonpareil in eight hours and the type-breaking delay was only six minutes for the day i claim yet as i have always claimed that the machine's market abroad and here together is to-day worth a hundred fifty million dollars without saying anything about the doubling and trebling of this sum that will follow within the life of the patents now here's a queer fact 
I am one of the wealthiest grandees in America, one of the Vanderbilt gang, in fact, and yet if you asked me to lend you a couple of dollars, I should have to ask you to take my note instead. It makes me cheerful to sit by the machine. Come up with Mrs. Goodman and refresh yourself with a draft of the same. Yours ever, Mark. The machine was still breaking the types now and then, and no doubt Page was itching to take it to pieces, and only restrained by force from doing so. He was never thoroughly happy unless he was taking the machine apart or setting it up again. Finally, he was allowed to go at it, a disastrous permission, for it was just then that Jones decided to steal a day or two from the silver bill and watch the typesetter in operation. Page already had it in parts when this word came from Goodman, and Jones' visit had to be called off. His enthusiasm would seem to have weakened from that day. In July, Goodman wrote that both Mackey and Jones had become somewhat diffident in the matter of huge capitalization. He thought it partly due, at least, to the fatal delays that have sicklied over the bloom of original enthusiasm. Clemens himself went down to Washington and perhaps warmed Jones with his eloquence. At least, Jones seemed to have agreed to make some effort in the matter, a qualified promise, the careful word of a wary politician and capitalist. How many Washington trips were made is not certain, but certainly more than one. Jones would seem to have suggested forms of contracts, but if he came to the point of signing any, there is no evidence of it today. Anyone who has read Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court has a pretty good idea of his opinion of kings in general, and tyrants in particular. Rule by divine right, however liberal, was distasteful to him. Where it meant oppression, it stirred him to violence. In his article, The Tsar's Soliloquy, he gave himself loose rein concerning atrocities charged to the master of Russia, and in a letter which he wrote during the summer of 1890, he offered a hint as to remedies. The letter was written by editorial request, but was never mailed. Perhaps it seemed too openly revolutionary at the moment. Yet scarcely more than a quarter of a century was needed to make it timely. Clemens and his family were spending some weeks in the Catskills when it was written. An Unpublished Letter on the Tsar on Teora, 1890. To the editor of Free Russia, I thank you for the compliment of your invitation to say something, but when I ponder the bottom paragraph on your first page, and then study your statement on your third page, of the objects of the several Russian liberation parties, I do not quite know how to proceed. Let me quote here the paragraph referred to but men's hearts are so made that the sight of one voluntary victim for a noble idea stirs them more deeply than the sight of a crowd submitting to a dire fate they cannot escape. Besides, foreigners could not see so clearly as the Russians how much the government was responsible for the grinding poverty of the masses, nor could they very well realize the moral wretchedness imposed by that government upon the whole of educated Russia but the atrocities committed upon the defenseless prisoners are there in all their baseness concrete and palpable 
admitting of no excuse, no doubt or hesitation, crying out to the heart of humanity against Russian tyranny. And the Tsar's government, stupidly confident in its apparently unassailable position, instead of taking warning from the first rebukes, seems to mock this humanitarian age by the aggravation of brutalities. Not satisfied with slowly killing its prisoners and with burying the flower of our young generation in the Siberian deserts, the government of Alexander the Third resolved to break their spirit by deliberately submitting them to a regime of unheard of brutality and degradation. When one reads that paragraph in the glare of George Keenan's revelations and considers how much it means, considers that all earthly figures fail to typify the Tsar's government, and that one must descend into hell to find its counterpart, one turns hopefully to your statement of the objects of the several liberation parties, and is disappointed. Apparently, none of them can bear to think of losing the present hell entirely. They merely want the temperature cooled down a little. I now perceive why all men are the deadly and uncompromising enemies of the rattlesnake. It is merely because the rattlesnake has not speech. Monarchy has speech, and by it has been able to persuade men that it differs somehow from the rattlesnake, has something valuable about it somewhere, something worth preserving, something even good and high and fine when properly modified something entitling it to protection from the club of the first comer who catches it out of its hole. It seems a most strange delusion, and not reconcilable with our superstition that man is a reasoning being. If a house is afire, we reason confidently that it is the first comer's plain duty to put the fire out in any way he can, drown it with water, blow it up with dynamite, use any and all means to stop the spread of the fire and save the rest of the city what is the czar of russia but a house of fire in the midst of a city of eighty millions of inhabitants yet instead of extinguishing him together with his nest and system the liberation parties are all anxious to merely cool him down a little and keep him it seems to me that this is illogical idiotic in fact suppose you had this granite-hearted bloody-jawed maniac of russia loose in your house chasing the helpless women and little children your own what would you do with him supposing you had a shotgun well he is loose in your house russia and with your shotgun in your hand you stand trying to think up ways to modify him do these liberation parties think that they can succeed in a project which has been attempted a million times in the history of the world and has never in one single instance been successful? The modification of a despotism by other means than bloodshed? They seem to think they can. My privilege to write these sanguinary sentences in soft security was bought for me by rivers of blood poured upon many fields and many lands but I possess not one single little paltry right or privilege that come to me as a result of petition, persuasion, agitation for reform, or any kindred method of procedure. 
when we consider that not even the most responsible english monarch ever yielded back a stolen public right until it was wrenched from them by bloody violence is it rational to suppose that gentler methods can win privileges in russia of course i know that the properest way to demolish the russian throne would be by revolution but it is not possible to get up a revolution there so the only thing left to do apparently is to keep the throne vacant by dynamite until a day when candidates shall decline with thanks then organize the republic and on the whole this method has some large advantages for whereas a revolution destroys some lives which cannot well be spared the dynamite way doesn't consider this the conspirators against the czar's life are caught in every rank of life from the low to the high and consider if so many take an active part where the peril is so dire is this not evidence that the sympathizers who keep still and do not show their hands are countless for multitudes can you break the hearts of thousands of families with the awful siberian exodus every year for generations and not eventually cover all russia from limit to limit with bereaved fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters who secretly hate the perpetrator of this prodigious crime and hunger and thirst for his life do you not believe that if your wife or your child or your father was exiled to the mines of siberia for some trivial utterances wrung from a smarting spirit by the czar's intolerable tyranny and you got a chance to kill him and did not do it that you would always be ashamed to be in your own society the rest of your life suppose that that refined and lovely russian lady who was lately stripped bare before a brutal soldier and whipped to death by the czar's hand in the person of the czar's creature had been your wife or your daughter or your sister and to-day the czar should pass within reach of your hand how would you feel and what would you do consider that all over vast russia from boundary to boundary a myriad of eyes filled with tears when that piteous news came and through those tears that myriad of eyes saw not that poor lady but lost darlings of their own whose fate her fate brought back with new access of grief out of a black and bitter past never to be forgotten or forgiven if i am a swinburnian and clear to the marrow i am i hold human nature in sufficient honor to believe there are eighty million mute russians that are of the same stripe and only one russian family that isn't mark twain typesetter matters were going badly clemens still had faith in jones and he had lost no grain of faith in the machine the money situation however was troublesome with an expensive establishment and work of one sort or another still to be done on the machine his income would not reach perhaps goodman had already given up hope for he does not seem to have returned from california after the next letter was written a colorless letter in which we feel a note of resignation the last few lines are sufficient to joe t goodman in california dear joe i wish you could get a day off and make those two or three californians buy those privileges for i'm going to need money before long i don't know where the senator is but out on the coast i reckon 
I guess we've got a perfect machine at last. We never break a type now, and the new device for enabling the operator to touch the last letters and justify the line simultaneously works to a charm. With love to you both, Mark. The year closed gloomily enough. The typesetter seemed to be perfected, but capital for its manufacture was not forthcoming. The publishing business of Charles L. Webster and Company was returning little or no profit. Clemens's mother had died in Keokuk at the end of October, and his wife's mother in Elmira a month later. Mark Twain, writing a short business letter to his publisher manager Fred J. Ball, closed it. Merry Christmas to you and I wish to God I could have one myself before I die. End of section 32 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista